Hello and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing my conversation with Allison Sanford. Allison was a Seven Stager who scored a 173 on the LSAT and is now a 3L at Harvard Law School. Before attending law school, Allison was very active on our forums, where she hosted two webinars on how to study for the LSAT and a webinar on how to navigate the various resources on the internet for people who are interested in doing public interest law. We spoke for about an hour, where I asked Allison to talk to us about her two summer experiences that she now has under her belt, where she interned at public interest law firms. We also talked about her plans for after graduation. We touched upon the financial realities of going to law school, and we spoke about how she managed the grueling academics during her 1L year. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I learned a lot from Allison. And it was just nice to catch up with one of our old students to see what she had been up to. As you'll hear, the conversation we had took place in front of an online audience. So towards the last ten minutes of our conversation. We opened it up to Q and A. So, without further ado, I hope you'll enjoy. Okay, so welcome everyone. This is the webinar that、uh, I'm hosting with Allison. My name is JY Ping,、um, and Allison、uh, used to be a Seven Sager who was, you know, time flies because I I could have said you were on Seven <laughs> Sage not not that long ago, but now look at you, you're rising three L at or you、yeah. already are three L at Harvard. I am. So、mm-hmm. it's exciting. My goodness. Yeah, it doesn't feel like law school has been fast for me, but I understand the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? One L was the longest year, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels by the end of two L, you're like, okay, I'm about as good as I'm going to get at this stuff until I practice.、Right. So three L just feels like why, you know? Right. Yes. Yes.、Yeah. I I I remember that too. It's just、um, a lot of people actually think that you know law school should just be two years, and then just. You oh learn, yeah, I I hundred percent believe like the conspiracy theory that it's <laughs> only three years to make money. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So、um, this so we we we、uh, pulled a lot of questions from Seven Sagers who、uh, want、oh, to find out all about your、uh, past two years at Harvard.、Um, I、uh-huh. also have some questions for you. Um, but I do want to keep、uh, keep the part where just just you and I are talking, kind of brief, just so that、uh, other people here can can get in and、um, join the conversation. But sure,、um, in no specific order, I'm going <laughs> to just start asking some questions at random. Favorite law school class?、Mm. I really really enjoyed a class that is offered at HLS, and I don't know if there's like a. Corollary at other schools, I imagine at some schools there is. It was called civil rights litigation. Did you、mm-hmm. take that here, JY? I don't、uh, know. I took the、uh, required one L course, civil procedure, but not.、Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, very yeah, different. Very different. Civil、yeah. rights litigation is <clears throat> it's taught by、uh, a wonderful professor named Scott Michaelman, who is、uh, ACLU litigator in DC, and it's about how to actually bring. Civil rights lawsuits, primarily based on、uh, Section 1983, which is like the statute that creates a cause of action for suing government actors when、um, civil rights are violated. So, I really enjoyed that class because it was so pragmatic. So, I took it during 2L, and I think 1L is just, in a lot of ways, a fire hose, and you're 
kind of trying to keep your head above water. At least this was my experience. And I think some of my peers as well. Like if you don't have like a parent who's a law school professor, everything's new, you know? <laughs> um, and so for me, it was just refreshing once I had some grounding, like once 1L was under my belt to then have a class that was much more pragmatic and not as theoretical. It was really like, how do these lawsuits work and, and walking us through and thinking like learning and thinking in the classroom like a litigator would. Okay. So if you have a suit that's like this kind of fact pattern, how strong is that going to be in terms of like the likelihood that it's going to get thrown out? Um, right. I think like the whole scope of learning about civil rights litigation in particular is kind of like, like there's no remedy for most of American history and then you have an expansive remedy and then you have a real narrowing. And so figuring out like which suits are still valid within, mm. like now that we're in the territory chronologically of that narrowing has already happened, like mm. which suits can you get into court, which suits are valid. Um, so that was just an amazing class because it was so practical and I learned so much. Um, and I paired it with a clinical experience where I was doing some of uh, or like working on some of those suits so that was really interesting it was also like the class that made me cry the most because <laughs> the cases we read were just heartbreaking and oh. you couldn't be in that class i think i think people because they self-select into a class like civil rights litigation like right. i don't know maybe you care about racial injustice in america or something like that um so you're probably in it with some kind of personal story about why you care about it. And then you have to read this like horrific case law. Yeah. Sometimes the stories are horrific of what happened to people. And sometimes it's come, well, always the stories are horrific. And then it's compounded sometimes by the yes. court just sitting back and saying yeah. no remedy. Right. So um, right. yeah, but that, that has been a real standout course for me. And I highly recommend for folks who are headed to law school look for clinical work, look for classes that teach you how to actually do the work. Um, yeah. Unless you're just a hundred percent wanting to be a legal academic, which that's great too. Um, yeah. But if you want to practice, like look for the people who will teach you how to do that. Yeah. You, 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 uh, well, before you went to law school, you did a public interest uh, webinar for us. So the, it, it makes sense that this, this class, you know, is, is uh, right up your alley. Are you, I take it you're still interested in public interest or? Yeah. Yep. All the way. <laughs> all the way. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That... And I'm definitely like willing to chat over email or, you know, I definitely want to be a resource for folks who want to do that. Cause I think there's far too many barriers, like keeping people out. And right. um, if we can help each other, I think that's like half yeah. the battle. So email yeah. me. Great. Yeah. We'll share We'll share your contact information at the end. Um, Great. What, what was it like? I mean, I know Harvard has a uh, career office that provides a lot of resources to, to uh, mm -hmm. help, help students find jobs. But um, I would say probably like 80% is the weight is probably like 80, 20 private, private public. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's still true. Um, I think that's a good guess on sort um, of a ballpark figure. My favorite anecdote about how this works at Harvard is can be summarized like very briefly, which is there's OCS, the Office of Career Services, and then there's the public interest counterpart, which is OPIA, the Office of Public Interest like, Advising. That's right, Office of Public Interest yeah. Advising. <laughs> yeah. So like OCS, even if you're a student, like I didn't have any questions about whether or not I was going into the private sector. Like I did not need to explore it. I think I just spent enough time 
outside of law school before I went that I had my mind completely made up. Some people come in more marginal and they like want to do a summer at a firm and a summer at a public interest organization and then pick. And I was like, nope, that's, that's fine. Like you guys do your thing. I'll do my thing. Here's the anecdote that I think describes like the way the river flows at the school. I can't get off the OCS list. Like I, <laughs> I physically cannot get them to remove my email list from all of their notifications. Right. And I think they just see themselves as so essential to every student and they don't really believe you when you tell them you don't right. want to do private work. <laughs> yeah. um, they're like, you're yeah. going to change your mind. We'll just keep you on here. So, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of great support at Opia. I think there's a fair amount of institutional resources that go into that as well. And, um, you know, I think you can really tell where, what a school prioritizes and if they really care about public interest based on if they're willing to invest money. Right. It, like the private the private firms have so much money to invest into recruiting. So it makes OCS the um, office of career services, the one that that that's the, that's the office that sets up all of the um, on campus interviews, which. Yes. Yeah. Which I guess where you are at 3L. So you would have already done this at the beginning of your 2L year. So if you were going the private route, it would have been a right. year ago that you came back to campus, like towards the end of the summer to get all dressed up and, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what most of your classmates did. Um, yeah, yeah. But they have, you know, the, those firms have the money to send their associates yeah. and partners uh, in, in in small armies to, to like right Cambridge totally every year. To... I do go to the free dinners, like I do shamelessly <laughs> do that. Um, nice. Yeah. And then if partners talk to me, I just try to talk to them about how much of their income they're going to give away. <laughs> so that's my tact. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But so, I, yeah. yeah it's harder yeah, for ahead, it's far, it's harder for for the uh, public interest um, firms to do recruiting. It's just you know yeah. financially yeah. They're, they're not as well positioned. It's just never going to be the same. Yeah. And so I think it just becomes very early in your career. There's just this binary where there's a lot of hand holding the private route because you can just sign up for these on campus interviews and you can like meet someone who gives you a job after offer after a week and you can just say yes to that and you can kind of cruise you know and then like yeah it's, it's not just the money too i think it's the job security and people having a sense of where they're going more than a year out like that's pretty invaluable to a lot of people and i understand that like the uncertainty in public interest is one of the i think major things that makes it difficult right. um but then if you do public interest i think you just have to look at it more like the regular job market like no one is going to go yes. find you your job for yes. you that's a very weird thing that happens at law school for for the private sector but right. really doesn't happen in most right. places just, you know just so, so i'm sure a lot of people already knows but just just so we're absolutely clear the, the weirdness gets it's like inverted you know in, in the in the normal world like yeah you just like you just, nobody holds your nobody like serves up jobs to you and then you're just like hmm, I right. think i'll take this one right mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to you have to blast your resume you have to make contacts you have to find out where to apply who's hiring um it's not standardized in other words but it's yeah. all that gets inverted in law school where uh you know like like we said every year the firms just all come and they just recruit you so it, it's mm -hmm. really um I, i've I, I heard it described as the path of least resistance like you just yes, do definitely. You, you do like almost nothing, and then you get m multiple job offers from law firms. Yeah, um, yeah, totally not like that with uh, public interest. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, uh, what what have you been what have you been working on? You've had two summers under your belt. Yeah, so I did two public interest summers. Um, 
it's a little bit easier at HLS. I know not every school can do this, but we get like a small stipend. It's like sad when you compare it to the salary of your peers, but it's also, it kind of, it covers some summer expenses and yeah. makes it feel like takes a little bit of the sting out of it. Cause yeah. these um, folks are usually not able to pay interns. So the first summer I was at uh, an organization in St. Louis called Arch City Defenders. Um, some folks know about them because they, they started to get a lot of notoriety when Mike Brown was murdered and Ferguson was rioting. Um, but they'd been on the ground before that. And they, like, I wanted to go learn about community-based lawyering and how to partner with community activists for change and like what role lawyers play. Um, and the other thing that really attracted me to them and made me want to spend my first summer there is that they had kind of a blend, they have kind of a blended model where they do a lot of they like all of their clients are poor folks and a lot of them are also like homeless or housing insecure, but they, so that's their focus is on like those people for their client base. Um, but they have some fluidity with where they work in the law. And so they do a lot of civil side, like traffic fines and fees. Um, they're, they're pushing back on like on the, those systems of like, functionally finding people for poverty or even just like finding people for very arbitrary things they're pushing back um structurally by filing lawsuits to try to get those practices deemed unconstitutional mm -hmm. and then they're also doing direct services helping people get reductions in those fines or you know have these like little traffic courts actually do an income analysis and realize these guys are indigent and they shouldn't be putting them on these crazy payment plans. And they have a little bit of a criminal practice too, because if they end up um, with a client who they're kind of otherwise committed to, who maybe came through the draft court and they find out they have more serious criminal matters, they can be involved. So they're sort of a, because they're a community-based lawyering organization, they are, I think, a little bit more flexible and nimble with the needs. Like, and, and I, I just really love them because they're so unpretentious. They're like, oh, we just started suing these cities because it looked like what they were doing was unconstitutional. And we didn't really know how to file these lawsuits, but we were like, so here's here's the calculus they did. They were like, we could either file a lawsuit and not really know how to do it and maybe get it thrown out, or we could do nothing. And we'd rather look like idiots and try than like, you know, <laughs> be too afraid because mm -hmm. we want to be perfectionists and we never serve anyone. So their whole ethos is kind of like, let's do it. And I just yeah. really liked that. Yeah. Um, so that's our city. That was my first summer. And my second summer, I was at the public defender service in DC. Um, so they just handle a subsection of the uh, indigent criminal cases that mm -hmm. arise in the district of Columbia. And they're sort of known in public defense circles for being, um, like a great place to go get trained. And I've had kind of three to four major interest areas in terms of practice that I've been exploring in school and criminal defense was one of them. So I wanted to like go to the best place. Mm -hmm. Well, what people say is the best place in the country. There's like wonderful places to be trained everywhere, but PDS is really high quality in terms of their um, intern program. So I wanted to go there and, and experience that. And now I'm doing um, CJI, which is the indigent criminal defense clinic at Harvard. So PDS was a great like primer for what I'm just stepping into now. Mm. Did you get to work on uh, real cases when, when you were at PDS? I did. Yeah. Um, my caseload was actually lighter than I expected. And it was because the, I was actually working under two attorneys, which was a little bit unusual, but both of them had lighter caseloads than they'd expected. So one of them had a trial 
that then. <laughs> Sorry, what were their caseloads? Do you know? Oh, PDS is really different. So I don't know their exact caseloads. I didn't come on to all their cases. They would like pull me on to specific ones. But um, the PDS lawyers have an incredible situation because they handle like under 30 cases a year, which in the realm of public defense is unheard of, like unheard of. How, how are they able to do that? How are they even doing it? Yeah, well, there's a couple things happening. One is that there's Wait, sorry. there's a split uh, system. Just, to build, just mm -hmm. to build a little more attention before you address that, I just want to make sure <laughs> everyone knows that that's- How much oh, Yeah, that is completely- do. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, can, maybe, like yeah, maybe you can speak to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are some places that have been sued for unconstitutional caseloads. Like you can have <laughs> upwards of- Wait, for real? Three- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This That's... is a, this is a whole thing. Um, you can have upwards of 300 cases a year as a public defender in counties that are really overwhelmed. And let me just, I, I was doing just a little bit of number crunching because I was like, am I an insane person for wanting to be a public defender? <laughs> there are 260 working days in a year, Right. 300 cases, 260 right. working days. So like all I took out was weekends. I didn't yeah. take out holidays. I didn't take out any of that. Right. So like, yeah. I mean, and there, there's these terrible stats from a lot of public um, defense agencies that like the average that a public defender can spend on a case is like seven minutes. I don't know. Right. That's like a floating stat in my right. head that I read somewhere. I don't know where it's from or the methodology of how they got there, but yeah. it's horrific. Yeah. So um, PDS is like a flagship public defense agency and they're really what they're trying to do, they, they have a very cush situation. I'm not going to frame it as anything other than that because <laughs> they don't have to handle that volume of cases. But what right. they're trying to do is a lower caseload at a very high quality and train folks to send out all over the country so that when you're met with those sort of crushing caseloads, you have a sense of what good advocacy looks like and you don't just become another cog in the wheel that's like stamping someone's constitutional right to a defense attorney while not actually giving them that um service so yeah yeah so that's the tension <laughs> <laughs> are they are they just really well funded or i mean they must be yeah highly so they're federally about... funded okay they're weirdly well funded um there's some complications like right now they have a hiring freeze because they're they're like a weird proxy part of the federal government um huh. but they've been weirdly well funded for a long time and i don't know all the politics behind that but but it is it's in their like their charter or their it might be like the sort of preamble to the um, uh, to the law that created them, that they're supposed to be this flagship, really high quality mm. public defender for the whole nation to emulate. And so I think the federal government has always like found it somewhat yeah. important to fund yeah. them yeah. as much as the federal government cares about poor people. Like that's as far yeah. as that goes, you know, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a better situation there than a lot of places. And the other thing, that is like the the folks who absorb the caseload the rest of the cases in dc are like i can't remember the acronym for it but it's a it's a part of the private defense bar that gets certified to be public defenders and they get paid per case i believe okay. um so the way it works in dc is pds actually handles all of the super serious cases like all of the um, homicides, yeah. all of the, yeah. And, and especially the like super serious uh, felonies. felonies okay. And then the lower level misdemeanors all go to the private bar that's certified to to do yeah. public defense. Um, so that's yeah. how they split it. But I think PDS takes about 30% of DC's caseload for indigent defense. I could oh, be wrong on that. Yeah. I have a friend in New York from, she was in my class at, from Harvard and she's been a public defender ever since we graduated 
um, case law started at, at legal aid um, in New York started with like it was just overwhelming the first couple of years like over 100 100 cases and um it's it's not really gone down at all but she just better she's better able to manage it yeah i think people just start to be able to cope but the thing that kills me about it is i can't imagine that it's anything less than a trade-off like that you just pick cases to invest time in and you pick cases not to because i don't see how else you could function yeah i mean you just look at the facts and you just know that some cases actually you got a shot and, and I think there's so many more cases where a good lawyer could do something. It's not like all of these, yeah, like, like most people are not getting nearly the kind of representation they should be getting and the government's not being challenged on their evidence and there's not time to file proper motions. And it really is, it's truly a shit show in most of the country with public defense. What do you think like systematically could be done about that? Well, I think prosecutorial reform is super important. Um, I've got a case. I'm not going to like talk about details because that's confidentiality. Um, but I have a case that I just picked up on Monday that I'm like, I don't even understand why the prosecutor brought this. It's so useless. And when you, when you think about it in terms of like things that we should be thinking about on a broader scale, right? Like public safety, both, both for the person who's charged with the crime, like, are they safe? What's going on in their life? Um, but also for anyone else who was involved with the scenario that gave rise to the police report or whatever it was. Um, I just feel like our fundamental framework should be harm reduction. Like, I think we should treat crime like a public health issue. And the thing that kills me about our approach, in addition to like all of the dehumanization and I, and the racism and the classism, I think the thing that like really gets to me is that the rhetoric of tough on crime stuff and like, you know, tough prosecution is always about crime reduction, but that's not what they're actually doing. And I, I feel like we actually do know what decreases crime, help people with their addiction issues, give them mental health care, um, give them money and ways to earn money when they grow up in neighborhoods that are just totally impoverished and have no economic prospects. Like those are the things that decrease crime. So if we actually cared about like victims rights, we'd be doing those things. If we actually cared about decreasing crime and making our community safer, we would be not taking a fundamentally punitive approach to what gets classified as crime in our society, you know? So, and I don't think there's an easy answer because like it's, it's very, very hard and it's very emotional and people have like revenge impulses and that's probably natural, but I don't think the state should be in the business of revenge and punishment, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing a lot of the stuff you're talking about has to do with our drug laws. For sure. But also like upcharging on like an assault and battery. If I like shove you on the shoulder, J. Roy, like if we're sitting next to each other right now and I like shoved you and it was an unwanted touch, that's, that's battery. that can be an A and B. Yeah. 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 How insane is that? Right. Um, In Massachusetts, if you touch someone with your foot while you have a shoe on, which is like most of the time when you're in public, hopefully that is assault <laughs> and battery with a dangerous weapon because a shod foot counts as a dangerous weapon in Massachusetts. Oh, and I know what they're trying to get at is like, you can stomp someone with a boot, like you can do right. damage with a shoe, yes. but I have had clients in, in past clinical work who have this charge and it's like, no one got hurt. There was a shoe involved. That's all. So I think upcharging is a huge problem um, or just like, converting really stupid normal everyday stuff like bar fights into something that we call assault and battery like there's just not yeah i mean so i think drug laws i think how we deal with like low level violent crime or what gets termed violent crime um 
and then there's like an entire category. This is kind of my first summer, my one all summer. There's an entire category of like criminalizing lifestyle stuff. And so like traffic fines and fees count under that. Um, and like vagrancy stuff that applies to folks who are homeless or like they're the ones who get cited for it. And then another, I think a huge driver, you know, we've seen this in, in New York in particular is police departments just do have quotas. Like they're functionally operating with quotas for citations, not everywhere in the country, but in a lot of places. And that's a bad incentive system. It's like being run like a business, right? And that's really weird. We should be responding to actual crime, not like I need to issue 30 tickets because the city revenue calls for that. That's ridiculous. But that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, if you want revenue, just do it through tax, right? Do it the proper way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But there's all these workarounds. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot of drivers of the situation we're currently in. Right. So that's, I think that's all on the... um on, on the uh, in terms of re- reducing demand uh, for public defender services, right? Um, on on the on the supply side, I suppose I don't know. Is there anything else besides just like better funding, just more money, without more jobs? <laughs> oh, that's a good question, JY. I mean, I think there's I think money is is a real answer in the sense that like you need more lawyers so that the caseloads aren't crushing, so that people stay. And like I'm doing this calculus right now like just quality of life stuff is important to me and I want to have a meaningful career and do public service with my career but I don't want to have like no time for my family and that's one of the main reasons I'm not going straight into public defense because I can't guarantee that it would feel manageable and I just don't have the bandwidth at this point in my life to throw myself into what could be like two to three years of just trying to keep my head above water before I'm even like competent um and so like if if the situation were more like PDS, like you might have 75 cases in a year, I would maybe be doing something different right now. So I think we're losing a lot of good lawyers um, who are choosing out of public defense because the life you're asking them to choose is a is a very high cost. So more funding for more lawyers for lower caseloads. Um, I think another thing that's really important is building community within the group of advocates that is sort of like constantly being told that what they're doing is less important or less valuable than what other parts of the system are doing. So I saw it a lot in DC. I saw it a lot in St. Louis. And it sort of surprised me. Like I didn't know there was active disdain for public defenders in courts, but you will see, I think this is particularly bad in the South, from judges, from judges. Yeah. And other court actors like, it's, I think because at the end of the day, they're people and they might be like hungry or they want to go home and like, they don't want to hear another objection and they don't want to receive another motion. So I think when you're trying to be a zealous advocate and you're going with this like really, you know, intense defense model of like, I'm going to pull out all the stops. And I'm going to do everything, especially in a case that looks bad, like just looks like it's going to go a certain way. I think a lot of other actors in the system just look at you as like, you're wasting everyone's time or you're you're being like unnecessarily argumentative, but that you're actually doing your job. Your job is to go, forgive the expression, your job is to go balls to the wall for the client. Like that's your job. So to tell someone tone it down a little is like pretty uh, disrespectful to their role. But I saw a lot of, a lot of judges do that. Um, I mean, what would you ever tell? Like, what, what would you, who would you tell that to? Would you tell the prosecution to tone it down? Right. No, it never happens to them. It's crazy. It's, it's like, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost, I think a lot of the time there's contexts where the, there sort of feels like there's this insider club that's like the police and the prosecutor and sometimes the judges, which is like totally inappropriate, but it happens. Like they, they see that they see each other all the time. And I think in some ways they feel like they're on the same team because they like work for the state and the defender, you know, works for the client via the state, like the funding comes through that, but um, you're on the other side. And anyway, so there's some really important work happening um, with like Gideon's promise. I don't know if you're familiar with what they're doing, but they're, they're building community and training, um, training modules with public defenders in like the most underserved areas with like the most crushing caseloads and the most like deeply embedded systemic issues. And they're creating camaraderie amongst, amongst public defenders and like helping them have resources outside of the office they work in, which may or may not have like a mentor for them who has any time or like may or may not even have an ethos of like zealous advocacy. Cause I think some, sometimes like there's kind of a, maybe a generation of public defenders or just like geographic areas where people have been doing it for a long time. And they're like, kind of see themselves more as paper pushers, unfortunately, um, or start to operate that way. So Gideon's Promise tries to take young public defenders in these like particularly difficult areas and um, give them a lot of like emotional support and professional support and like just straight up resourcing. Like here's here's like, we're gonna practice closing arguments. Like, so you can feel like you can take things to trial. You know what I mean? Um, so that's really, really important. I think in addition to the funding is the like, it's the same thing if you wanna create any social movement, right? And I think public defense right now is like a mini social movement in the country. Um, you have to like create bonded community so that people can stay in the fight for the long haul. I think that's what makes the difference. Otherwise people burn out and they feel isolated and they have mental health breakdowns and they quit, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a really emotionally stressful job. Yeah. In addition to just being physical, you know, just demanding physically of your time because of the caseload, it's also just emotionally incredibly demanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can talk about this literally forever. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to. Uh, yeah. Okay. Cover well, other maybe. Or... Yeah. Maybe we can. Maybe we can pivot a little bit to um, a, a big, a big topic. It's not a specific question. Sure. Just a big topic. A lot of people are interested in is um, uh, uh, finances. You know, like the, mm -hmm. the financial realities. Uh, yeah. Like what it's like. So, like, mm -hmm. you, we all sort of know, like, these numbers are not real until they're real until they're like, Oh, okay. I, I actually am this much in debt. Yeah. Um, so what, what's that been like? I mean, I mean, that's really tough. And actually one thing I, I'm glad you raised the question because I feel, I personally feel like we just need to talk about it more with each other and we need to have like friend groups where you can talk about it specifically, yeah. right. Where people feel like comfortable divulging more specifics and saying like, this is what's really scaring me. Um, or like, this is the thing I haven't looked at cause I'm afraid to even figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think this is, well, a, it's a hidden driver behind like the bleed from public interest into the private sector. And I, I really, am not trying to say like people are ethically obligated to go into the, public interest to go into any kind of public interest work because I realize that the, the financial strain is really real and the debt is really crushing um but I do think if the money situation were you know even 50 percent or 40 percent different people would be making different choices so I think there's a couple ways to yeah. talk about the financial strain and one is like being honest about how that's influencing your decision making and I think you just owe it to yourself to be honest about that and not to like 
Like if you're like, I need to go to a firm because I need to pay off these loans and I just don't want to be beholden to my school to do some kind of low income payment plan, like, because I'm doing public interest, like that's not for me. I want to like crush these loans in five years and like aggressively pay them off. Like, great, like good for you, go do it and be like honest with yourself that that's why you're going to the firm. And, and, and you know, if there's other reasons, great. But, um, but yeah, I just, I think like the hidden thing there under the finances is like the emotional stress of how people decide to deal with it. And, uh, I feel like we just need a lot more conversation about that. But I, I just basically believe like it's a really individual choice and I don't want to judge what other people are doing to manage their debt because you don't know what someone's particular obligations are, right? right. Like some folks are coming into law school. They're the first in their family to get to grad school. Yeah. There's people home at home they're going to send money to and like yeah. just moving to New York and like taking a job at a high paying firm and working their ass off is going to be like a good short-term plan for them. I think there's other people yeah. that are in that exact same situation who like literally would not, like their soul would shrivel up inside if they did that day to day and they're only going to last <laughs> for a year at the firm. And like, yeah. they should know that about themselves and like, feel free to be who they are, you know, knowing that that's going to make other parts of their life maybe harder, like the financial part. But um, yeah, it's, it's super real. I mean, a stat that I read that I think is helpful is like, in the same, t I can't remember what this time period was, but in the same time period where like undergraduate tuition increased by 100% in the US, law school tuition increased by 300%. So you're just nice. dealing with like out, outrageous numbers. And the only thing that's worse, I think, is med school. Um, oh, yeah, so I mean, I think of it as a house, <laughs> student debt is a house in a right. lot of like relatively nice cities, right? It's more than one house in some cities. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, it's just like a hard reality and, um, and some people are also carrying over undergrad debt too. So that compounds it, you know, uh, I don't feel like I'm saying anything helpful. Do I? <laughs> no, no, no. Here. So I, I think, um, I think the year that I graduated, um, was when Harvard, uh, uh, what is the word? Um, just restructured how they do loan forgiveness and they made it much more inclusive and, and and they took down a lot of the barriers to entry. Like like it used to be you had to do XYZ things and now it's just like, okay, if you just don't make enough money, like we'll just start paying off your loan. So And I, they've actually just redone it again. I don't okay. know if you heard about that. No, it's no. So it's coming it like into now? effect this year. I, I so... always tell people when they're considering, you know, what like which like offers from different schools to uh, look very carefully specifically at each law school yes, because they're all so different they're all so different and a lot of schools are really stingy about p helping you pay back your loans and a lot of schools are very generous about it and it's a whole spectrum right so yeah can you t tell me about what um yeah what's what's going yeah on now? so i actually need to like catch up and read more de in more detail about yeah. it but um like one change that they've made is there's there's a bunch of changes like a lot of it has been around family stuff so like like you were saying before you could work in any kind of public interest job and just be like you can you could just graduate from harvard law and decide to be a teacher and then they will still help you pay off yeah. your loans so that's really great um and so i think where there were like still significant gaps after the reform that happened in your year it was yeah. about like in, in particular it was hard for folks who have families to uh, survive on the um you know, on like the graduated scale of like right. how much of their money Harvard was still taking. And then it was 
I, I didn't even know about this until I started reading. Like I wasn't on the committee that helped like shift lit, but some of my friends were. And um, like, it was incredibly hard for people who had children with disabilities because that can be so much more costly mm -hmm. and the school wasn't taking that into account enough. So a lot of like the calculations for how your how like your contribution to paying off your loans is determined based on how many children you have has shifted both in terms of like giving you better coverage for oh, nice. any kid and yeah. also like ensuring that coverage will be more appropriate for um, people who have children with special needs. So yeah. that's one change that I remember reading about and I need to like go back and, and look at right. more. But I think this is another, like if you know you want to do public interest, this is another reason to really try to go to the top three because I mean, I think there's some other gems out there that are doing well with supporting public interest students, but you're going to get the best like funding for yeah. how to pay off your loans if you go to Stanford or Yale or Harvard yeah. um, because they have the, you know, the money to put into it. So I think if that's your goal and you don't want to be dissuaded from it and you also know that the debt would be pretty unmanageable for you otherwise, um, definitely like you were saying, JY, look into the loan forgiveness programs of the particular schools you're interested in and consider like shifting your timeline on when you go to law school in order to shoot for those more competitive schools because it, it, it could really like completely change the trajectory of your career. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, for sure. It's not so much of a, it's less of a concern if you're going to private practice, you know? You just... Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's shift gears a bit. I, <laughs> someone brought it to my attention that the uh, title of this webinar is what's law school really like? So we haven't really <laughs> talked about that at all. Not um, just pontificating about the state of public defense. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay. Um, I guess what's law school really like, Allison? <laughs> That's such a broad question. Oh, um, I'll try to like, I don't know, create, create a little sound bite. It's like simultaneously so much more challenging and so much more delightful than I was expecting. So well, it's, that's, that's it really has been like. both. Yeah. 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 Um, and the years are really different. I think this is like the pattern I saw. So one mm -hmm. L the best analogy I've got for it is like, it's the fire hose or it's right. like an immersion environment. Like I kind of, so I spent a semester abroad when I was an undergrad and I remember like I didn't have I was in a Spanish speaking country in Argentina and I didn't have good enough Spanish skills when I went to like articulate the thoughts that were in my head, but I could speak in like baby Spanish. And so I would, I would be thinking something like nuanced and complicated. And I would be like, I'd like to have lunch. Like that was all I could say <laughs> to the people around me. And it was like, it was just really weird and like socially isolating until my capacity caught up to like what I was actually capable of saying. Mm. And I think there's like a similar dynamic in the first year of law school where you're like, wait a minute, I know I'm a smart person. Like, mm. I know I can learn things, mm. but it just feels like you've been demoted. You know, <laughs> like you just get floored. And this isn't going to be everyone's experience. Like some, there's these unicorns running around who just yeah. love it and want to stay in law school forever. And like yeah. all the details of the case make so much sense to them because they already have like the basic framework. And I'm like searching for the framework, right. like it's, you know, a mystery. So, um, so 1L is just, I think, an overwhelming immersion environment. And unfortunately, even though there's been like significant reforms in how law school is taught, I think the kind of background thing going on is it's always going to be the case. And it has been historically that 
in law school, you kind of teach yourself the law. And then most professors show up to class to like have what they consider to be interesting conversations about like, the finer point of the case or something that they're personally researching or working on. And not every professor is doing that, but like a lot of them are. Um, so it's weird because before you can start teaching yourself the law, you have to learn how to teach yourself the law. And that's the thing that you're good at by 2L, I think. Mm. Um, 1L, you're like, how do I even be a student here? And then the other thing that's weird is like, it's not a rubric. You're not just checking off expectations and no one's telling you how to do it. And it's truly the case that like everyone finds their own way in terms of like how to be a, a decent right. or a good law student. And part of that is because people have different priorities and values. So like my grades are not a very high value for me. Like I don't want to fail out of my classes or do poorly, but I, I personally believe that the amount of time and effort it would take to like bump my grades up. I'd much rather put that time and effort into like clinical work yes. and working with clients right now in school. Yeah. So that's my priority. And that's just a personal choice I made other people the number one thing they care about is like if they get Latin honors at the end of all this, you know? Right. Um, and so they're investing heavily in like that, that kind of last lap to get their grades good. You know, what, what I recall was that grades mattered at Harvard for two reasons. One is if you wanted to work at like the top three law firms or something like that. Um, and the second reason was if you wanted to clerk or I guess the third reason is if you want to be an academic at some point. So if, so if those three, um, if you're not all that interested in those three things, then I think grades just don't matter, right? Yes, I yeah. think that is true. And, and it's more true for a place like Harvard because you're going to get by on like how the school is known in terms of, yeah, like people yeah. may or may not ask for your GPA and yeah. then you can be like, we don't really have them. It's weird. Right. Yeah, um, it's it's like everyone just gets, it's still pass fail or high pass pass fail. Yeah, it's like, so you can actually fail. Then there's low pass, then there's pass, then there's high pass or H honors and then DS is Dean Scholar. And that's like a very, like a handful of students get those in every class or like one or two, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to address a question that popped up on the chat about like, do you see this JY about mm -hmm. uh, why can't we do more to prepare for law school? Oh, right. yes. So I, I was kind of, so Buck, I'm going to try to answer your question. Um, I, I did a little bit of the Larry law law stuff before I went to school. And I guess like, I feel like the reason you can't really prep that much for law school is because you, it, it it's kind of like saying like, why can't I prep for an immersion environment by like, you know, reading a Spanish book for two hours a day before I go to a Spanish speaking country. Like it might help a little bit to read that book and you're certainly going to increase your vocabulary, but you're not being thrown in yet. And I feel like the only way that I could have done significantly better in law school, like I really truly feel like there was nothing that could have like, that I could have been putting my time into in my summer before my 1L that would have like made me feel competent like it just would have been mm -hmm. such diminishing returns in terms of like i put in all these hours and then it wasn't even the right thing i was doing anyway because what you'd have to do to be really competent in 1l is have already taken 1l like that's <laughs> you just could do it twice you know um because the environment is so immersive and like like a lot the other thing is you're getting all the formative courses right like you're getting contracts in the first year you're getting civ pro you're getting um property and you see how they intersect especially like property and contracts have a lot of kind of ancient historic intersections because they're like derived from english common law and the magna carta and stuff like that and um 
you just, you, you have to learn it as you go, as you're reading cases and as you're literally spending hours of your life sitting in a classroom, listening to other people talk about these things, you just start to catch up. And I, I am very, like, I don't believe that there is no way to prep for it. I just don't know what it is. Um, I have heard that some schools are starting, I know Harvard's doing this, they're starting programs for folks who are first generation college students in their family who are now in grad school. So they're like, extra first generation grad school, like no one in their family even got close to grad school. And they're doing like preliminary prep stuff with them to help them feel more comfortable and less alienated when they get to school. And I think a fair amount of that programmatically is like, here's, here's some language you're going to encounter. Here is what X, Y, and Z means. And when people like throw out these words, like here's some other concepts these words are connected to. Um, and maybe everyone should have a course like that. They're calling it zero L at Harvard. Mm. Um, maybe everyone should do that. I'm not really sure. Cause I didn't go through it, but like, I just feel that it takes you six months to a year to learn how to be a law student. And it's unfortunate that you can't like come in already knowing how, but, but I can talk more concretely about how it's different. Like, cause I, I did well in college and, and then it just never felt like a super big struggle for me in college. I, so what's different in grad school, I think this is true at a lot of grad schools is like, you have this reading assignment. It's longer than the reading assignments and more complicated than you, that you, sorry, longer and more complicated than the reading assignments you would get during undergrad. And you're supposed to not just read it and have some ideas about it. You're supposed to go to class fully loaded. You're supposed to like have already thought about what it means, synthesized it with all of the other course material up until this point, and maybe have some like novel comment about it. Like it's just such a high level of functioning with brand new material. And that's what makes it so hard because so you kind of have to have, I think, the whole first year under your belt for most students to start to get to that level where you have a mind map of like the law and you can relate it to different things because you now you now have familiarity with all of these things, but you didn't have any familiarity before. So when you first start reading, it's like when you only have building blocks, how can you see the big picture, like mm -hmm. the map? So after 1L, you have a sketchy, somewhat holy map <laughs> And then you can keep filling things in as well as like make interesting connections and have sort of internal commentary as you read cases that make sense and is in line with legal academia. Like I remember one L year for my, my peers who were really good at this before me, I remember constantly being like, oh my God, how do you even, how are you reading the subtext of the policy argument when they're not even making a policy argument overtly? They're just like, you know, talking about some common law thing and that's their justification for the ruling but then you think it's this policy thing like i didn't catch on to all that stuff until much later and then in my civil rights litigation class that i'm talking about i was totally there like i'm reading these opinions that are basically torpedoing the power of school desegregation cases and all that they're talking about is like localized control and how the federal government like can't interfere too much in like sort of like the the blood of a community right like the very heartbeat of a community is like schools and parents and families and we can't let the government get their fingers in there and i'm reading this and that's the facial reasoning for the decision and i'm thinking oh my god this is backlash from brown v board right like now i can now i can read on that level mm. but i couldn't read on that level before right so just you're saying that uh what got you to be able to read at that level there's just no substitute for time and experience. Yes. Yes. How concise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. I don't. I don't think you, there's there is a substitute. You can't. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, did you use? Um, I think the popular uh, examples and explanations series. Yeah, I think those were helpful. I taught myself evidence with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to go to evidence class if you don't want. <laughs> Who'd you take evidence um, with? I'd rather leave that for another forum, a non-public forum. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I might have taken evidence with the same professor. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I found class less helpful than trying to learn it on my own. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I I just became aware that we only have about ten minutes left. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stop talking and just open it up um, to to the audience. Uh, if you guys have questions, now's the time. Okay, uh, Ryan just asked a question. R- Ryan, can you unmute yourself? Hey, sorry, no, I was just commenting. Some other people were talking about the previous subject about preparing for law school before you actually go, mm-hmm. and I was just kind of echoing what your experiences were. Like, I think it's definitely possible to get a head start, but um, my situation is kind of unique because I majored in law. Oh, yeah. And so after a little bit of a head start. <laughs> after a month or two in school, everybody kind of starts figuring it out. And then I think it just comes down to who, you know, who puts in the time and effort. Mm. I felt like it took me more than a month. <laughs> I'm going to say I was treading water for quite a while. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm sure everyone's on their own timeline. I think by the end of 1L, people are, everyone's like in a base level of competency for the most part. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for doing the webinar, by the way. Sorry, yeah. that wasn't really a question, more of a comment. That's oh, okay. no, that's, that's great. Yeah, thanks. That's fine. Yeah. I, I also remember just uh, being a uh, 1L and just being kind of overwhelmed, both by the uh, classwork and also just a little bit overwhelmed by how ridiculously hardworking everyone was. You know, I, I was a pretty hard worker, like in college and getting into law school, but that's just the norm. Apparently that was just the norm. You know, I was definitely, I felt like I was probably like one standard deviation above the mean, at least for undergrad in terms of how many all-nighters I'd pull and how hard I work. But then it's like, you get to law school, it's like, okay, yeah, there's there's more you can do. Oh, totally. It's, yeah. it's the people work so so hard here and i'm sure that's true at like most law schools i mean it's it's really incredible uh simon uh you have a question can you hi allison and joe like can you all hear me yeah hi yeah hey simon hey allison good to uh good to talk to you again um yeah yeah i was hoping if you talk about um what was your process for outlining courses and preparing for exams including maybe doing practice exams and what strategies have you found most helpful uh, to you over your first two years taking mm-hmm. exams? Well, uh, I, it was funny when JY, when you guys asked me to do this, I was like, hmm, maybe there's other people who like did better in law school. You could ask. <laughs> um, I, again, I just, grades weren't my uh, priority. And so I really was just like focused on passing my classes. Now I had a fair amount of anxiety about passing them, you know? Um, but I found it super overwhelming to start outlining early because kind of for the same reasons that I talked about with, I'm not sure how you could better prep for 1L besides like doing 1L. Um, there's just like, you have to get like the skeleton of the class or like, yeah, you have to get the skeleton of the class to know where to put certain things, right? Like 
does this go up near the arm, which is the section of the class that's on like, you know, I don't know, some concept. And so I felt like if I started outlining too early, I didn't have enough of a picture of the course to organize where things should go and figure out kind of like what buckets to slot them into. But if I outlined later in the course, it was much easier. Um, and my system actually that works the best for me, which it took me I was in 2L when I figured this out, is to look at a bunch of old outlines from other students um, and find one that I think is high quality or maybe find two and start to merge them. And then I use that as my base notes for the class. So I'd like print it out, write my notes in the margin, and then basically convert someone else's outline into my outline. I don't know anyone else who does that. Like a lot of people like making their own outlines. I find it overwhelming because because I just felt behind in terms of the concepts and I for some reason like looking at someone else's work when they'd already gone through the class was incredibly helpful for me in terms of organizing thoughts um and I don't spend a lot of time outlining and I don't spend a lot of time on practice tests um yeah that sounds like my experience too did you were you able to get <laughs> were you able to get like I, I there are a lot of uh student organ student organizations that have like really good outlines like the um uh what were some of the 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 Harvard Law Review definitely has like a great outline bank. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's tons that do. I know the Balsa chapter has outlines and and yeah. yeah, so if you're in clubs, like you'll have access to past students, their outlines. Um Harvard has a bunch of them up on well, it was HLS Dope and that site closed and now it's too dope. Um so some student made a like website that also functions as an outline bank mm -hmm. and some people probably are pickier than me and are like, oh, the best outlines aren't here. The best outlines are hidden in the basement storage of FedSoc and I have to get into FedSoc <laughs> to like get the best outlines. But I just, I was like, ah, look, these are fine for me, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. Practice tests really do help. If you care about grades, I do suggest you take practice tests, specifically ones your professor wrote. Like don't bother with anyone else's unless right. you know, it's sort of like using fake LSAT prep questions like right. why would you do that when there's so many real there's so much real LSAC material out there you know right. so like use all of your professor's material before you even think about going elsewhere the the class that I feel like I was able to control my grade in was one where I happened to because I was a one out and I was experimenting I like did some practice tests and I looked at like the answers I looked at the answers of students who did really well in that professor's class and then I kid you not this is what I did I mimicked the tone that they wrote in and the tone was arrogant asshole. And that's not how I write, but I just wrote like that on my exam and I got an H in that class. And I was like, wow. I'm pretty sure this was not about my arguments. It was about coming off super confident and being like, everyone else is stupid. And here's why. <laughs> um, so that experience actually made me be like, this is trash. The grading system is trash. I don't yeah. care about this. I want to help clients. I don't care about my grades. So yeah. I just like, didn't invest time doing that because I was like, look, when the stakes are real, when there's like a judge and I need to figure out what that judge responds to, then I will use this particular skill set of like, you know, mining information from other people about how to make good arguments for this person. But I'm just not going to spend the time doing that with my professors because I don't really care enough. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I really like, uh, I really like Amanda's question. Um, Amanda, if let's see if we can unmute you. Oh, hello. Hi. Hey. Hi. Um, so basically, I already wrote my question. It's just like, I'm really struggling. You said about like how the private sector was the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And then I guess a little bit 
Basically, for me, I'm I'm just like going straight from undergrad. I'm taking the gap year, and then I'm sort of like I don't want to sell my soul to a career that's not so meaningful. But also, I'm、mm. not really sure I want to go to、mm. like, public sector. And then I'm really afraid that just because of the stress of the law school and other. Recruiting, I might just lose what I really want, and I guess just like you know, because you're having such like a certain goal and everything. I wonder what advice you might have for people like me. Right. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I think there's a lot of people in that situation,、um, and it's not like it's a like I sort of feel like one answer to that question is spend more time outside of law school.、Um, but if you know for sure you want to go to law school and you just don't know what. Arena of practice you want to go into,、um, then there's not really any reason to spend more time not doing law school or not being a lawyer. But, but I guess sort of if you spend more time away from grad school before you choose into it, I think you just by virtue of being older know yourself better and maybe will feel a little bit、um, better able to navigate some of those like very personal decisions.、Um, but I think something that that I don't. Really, hear people talking about a lot that I think is really true,、um, and I, I just want to say this to respond to your question: is people are much more influenced by our environments than we like to believe. Like we think we're like static, and our personalities are set, and our values are set. But give someone like two years in, you know, a totally different immersion environment, and they're they're going to be influenced by it and probably change sometimes in significant ways, sometimes in more minor ways. And so I think you have to. Like accept that it's not a bad thing. It's just socialization and psychology. And I think you have to think about like what are the things about you that you don't want to change, and then watch those things. And and then they're red flags if they start changing. If you're like, no, this is core to me. This is Amanda. This is who I am. I don't want this thing to go away. And if I ever like betray this value, then I'll know that I'm not like operating as my true self in the world.、Um, but all these other things are not. Really important to me, and they could go either way. And if those things shift and flux, and if your priorities change, then that's great. Then you've just figured out what you want at that time in your life, which might be different than what you wanted now pre-law school.、Um, so it's a very personal journey. I don't think anyone will be able to make the decision for you, but there will be a fair amount of like kind of hidden pressure to do、um, the firm route. And so I think you just need to decide under what terms would you be okay with that. And、yeah. also, like, be self-aware. Like, take the time to reflect during school because it is really easy to just make decisions because it's fast and safe. Yeah, and I, it's not stressful once you've made your decision. <laughs> I would also say try stuff out.、Um, that's probably something I didn't do a good job of、uh, when I was in school. There are so many opportunities to try stuff out, like tons of clinics、mm-hmm, to get a sense of、mm-hmm. what it's like to practice. You, you don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like you.、Um, I, I was like you, man, and that I went straight through. So,、uh, but a little bit unlike you, I actually went to law school because I was so re- ready and willing to sell my soul for.、Um, only, <laughs> it was cheaper back then. It was only one hundred sixty-five thousand dollars. Now I think they they raised it. What a bargain! Yeah. <laughs> but then. You know,、um, you know, so so I, I didn't actually get to,、uh, I didn't really even want to、uh, try out a bunch of other stuff,、um, but yeah, I think just explore. And I totally agree with Al- what Alice has said about it, the, the environment shapes you, really does. So if you are worried about like、um, kind of like unconsciously、uh, just falling into the path of least resistance, well, then the burden is on you to 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 create an environment. You know, like maybe surround yourself with like-minded people who are. Um, you know, thinking about public interests,、uh, hang out at, at Opia instead of、uh, hang out at OCS, right?、Um, 
that's been super important to me, especially this year is like having a community of other public interest people. Like, I think I, maybe I had enough determination on this path that I would have done it no matter what. I'm not sure if I can really say that because again, the environmental thing, but um, having a core group of friends and a community that I feel very plugged into that knows me and knows what I'm doing and why, and we talk about it, that's very important. We actually, my housemate Katrina and I host this dinner like twice a month that is for like, uh, basically it's for like left-leaning Christians at the law school, which both of us are, and it's all public interest students. And we just sit around and talk about like how our path in our careers is intersecting with how we conceptualize our faith and what motivates us and drives us. And like last night we had the dinner and we shared like what inspires you. So people brought like passages or like someone they look up to. And we talked about that. And it sounds like kind of cheesy to create that context, but it's really powerful and really helpful and very um, centering. So whatever that looks like for you to stay true to what you believe in, I think that's really important to like, then go create that, go create community yeah. around that. Yeah. So it is, it, you're, you're already, you know, I think Amanda, you're already really sensitive to just even notice that because it's the path of least resistance, mm -hmm. it becomes like the default state, you know? So if you don't do very much, just expect that this is the default state. Like that's what everyone mm -hmm. end up, end up doing. Um, yeah. But okay. So we are, we are at the end of our um, hour long webinar. Thanks so much, Allison. This has been a pleasure. I, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you for asking me and good luck, everybody. Um, I don't know. It's it's worth it in the end if it's the path for you. That's, I guess, the summary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, have a good night. Yeah, you too. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi there, JY from the present. If you enjoyed that conversation, please consider giving us a like or a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, we're all ears. Please send those to podcast at sevensage.com. This is something very new for us, so I'm sure there's a lot for us to learn, and I really want to make this work for you, so please don't hold back. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you.